Pastor Jacob. Yes, well done, Pastor Jacob. Well done. Thank you. Thank you. We are delighted to have you here and how you care for us each Sunday is great. Good morning, everyone else. Thanks for being here. Open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11 um, and uh, mark it if you have a way to mark it. We're not going to get to till the end of the, of this, of the sermon, but, but we're going to land there and we're going to think about those saints of old who lined the way for the kingdom of God. Thank you, Adam, for that song. It was so helpful in terms of thinking about God's kingdom. Most of what we'll do today, I'm going to give you on the overhead. Uh, you can take some notes if you'd like. Don't worry about trying to write down the quotes. There'll be a lot of them. I can send them out this week. Just let God speak to you. The text is Matthew 6.10. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen. Please pray with me. Lord, our imaginations uh, are stretched by your word, by things like the Chronicles of Narnia, this kingdom that is beyond our comprehension. Lord, uh, we stand before you now realizing we need to know and understand your kingdom and participate in it. So Lord, we ask you to come now by your Holy Spirit and illumine us. Speak, Lord. Use these words that I'll speak. Use your word that I'll speak, Lord, and, and help us with that. Yes. Yes. And Lord, I need your help. Father, make this a better sermon than the one I prepared for your glory. In Jesus' name. Amen. R.C. Sproul, uh, in a book about the Lord's Prayer, tells a story about a friend of his from England who visited the United States. I'd like to read his little uh, retelling of this event uh, as it pertains to the kingdom of God. So, so R.C. Sproul, quoting him, he says this. He says, when my friend John Guest, who was a noted evangelist in England, first came to the United States in late 1960s, his first exposure to American culture was in the city of Philadelphia. During his first couple of days there, his hosts escorted him around the city to attractions such as Independence Hall and the Liberty Bell. They told him stories of the American Revolution to introduce him to the history of this new world he was embracing now as his home. John was enjoying all of this until they went to Germantown, just outside of Philadelphia, and visited an antique store that specialized in Americana. Among the items in the shop were placards and signs that displayed some of the battle cries and slogans of the revolutionary era, such as, no taxation without representation, right, remember that one, and don't tread on me, still see that sign around. But the placard that drew his keenest attention was the one that announced with bold letters, we serve no sovereign here. We serve no sovereign here. John told me later, that sign stopped me in my tracks. 
I had left my native land and come across the Atlantic Ocean in response to a call, a vocation to be a minister of the gospel to proclaim the kingdom of God. But in seeing this sign, I was filled with fear and consternation. I thought, how can I possibly preach the kingdom of God to a people who have a profound aversion to sovereignty? How indeed. The very idea of kingdom is unfamiliar, awkward, and even repellent to most Americans. We, we bridle at the abuse of power that seems inseparable from kingly authority men, and, and rightly so. But our unfamiliarity with good kings leads us to want to perhaps reverse engineer how we think about and how we approach God's kingdom. We can want a largely symbolic or ceremonial kingship. We, we, we can treat the, the kingdom like a smorgasbord or a cafeteria. You just kind of go through and pick and choose what you want to put on your plate. And the rest, not so much. We can want to democratize the kingdom. Okay, let's just get together and let's vote, figure out how we want to do this. We'll, we'll figure that out. Most often we simply forget or minimize the significance of being subjects of a king in a kingdom. To be sure, we categorically have a different kind of king and live in a categorically different kind of kingdom than has ever been experienced by any earthly king. Yet, while God is our dear Father in heaven, He is nonetheless a dread sovereign who judges with infinitely precise justice that though long in coming will be final and inescapable. To pray your kingdom come is potentially the most dangerous prayer you could ever pray. And to pray that in faith we need to understand what his kingdom is. So we'll look at two points today. Um, thank you, Jace, keeping it simple for me. A simple man, I get distracted with a lot of details. Point one, your kingdom come. Point two, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jace knows my weaknesses. Okay, point number one, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. So hang with me. We're going to think about broadly about God's kingdom. What is the kingdom of God? Jesus went everywhere preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, then again, Luke tells us the kingdom of God is coming. It's not coming in ways that can be observed. Then again, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all tell us the kingdom can be seen. That seems confusing. What is the kingdom? Jesus taught in parables that the kingdom of God is like a small mustard seed that grows into a tree in which the birds can nest. He, he said that it's like a, a little yeast that leavens the whole lump of dough. It's like a treasure hidden in a field. It's like a pearl of great price. It's like fishing with this net and getting good fish and bad fish. It's like sowing seeds. You don't know how it grows. It's like a wedding feast. What is the kingdom of heaven? What is the kingdom of God? Perhaps the simplest way I've come to think about it initially is to say the kingdom of God is what happens when the gospel is believed. The kingdom of God is what happens when the gospel is believed. 
To understand what God wants to happen when we believe the gospel, we'll need to look at God's kingdom in two ways. We're going to look at its future fullness, and we're going to look at our present participation in it. Its future fullness and our present participation in it. When Jesus calls us to pray, your kingdom come, he is drawing a straight line from eternity past through Adam in the Garden of Eden, through Noah in the flood, through Abraham in the sacrifice, through Moses in law, through David in his kingdom, through the prophets, the last of which was John the Baptist, through the risen Christ, through the church, to future glory. We see in the book of Revelation where the loud voices in heaven are saying, the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The kingdom of the world have become the kingdoms of the Lord and His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. That straight line takes us to the heavenly Jerusalem, where there is no temple in the city. For the temple, its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It has need of sun or moon to shine, for the glory of God is in it, and the lamp is the Lamb. That is where we're going. And that is what God, Jesus, is pointing to when he tells us to pray. Now, we can get excited about that final day, but still not grasp what the kingdom of God is. We're going to get very basic here. Graham Goldsworthy, in his book, Gospel of the Kingdom, describes the kingdom this way. Very simply, I think we have a slide for you. There's a king who rules, a people who are ruled, in a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. A king who rules, a people who are ruled, in a sphere where this rule is recognized as taking place. God's kingdom has been coming since the Garden of Eden. But not like the rising of the sun, not like this growing, increasing brightness, kind of ever brighter. God has increased the sphere of his kingdom on earth successively through specific initiatives that build upon each other intentionally throughout history. We read about them in the Old Testament to properly pray, your kingdom come. We must understand the history of what God has been doing and what God is doing. In fact, if we lose that history, we will drift into a skewed understanding of the gospel like happened in the Middle Ages and happens in churches today. We can drift into thinking that what goes on in our hearts, what we want from God, what we perceive, is somehow more important than what God has done historically and objectively. Certainly, we are saved by grace through faith. There is this inner awakening and, revel and resurrection that happens within us, which is, has to happen. But actually, that's less important than the objective reality that Christ did it on the cross already. He's bringing his kingdom. The gospel is something that happens to you. It's something you discover. You're being brought into a kingdom that's been going on since the Garden of Eden and is going on into the future, and you have been drawn into it. It's important to realize that. So again, let's think about what Dr. Goldsworthy, how he imagines it. He says, I think we have a slide for you. The kingdom of God involves God's people in God's place and under God's rule. God's people, God's place, under God's rule. So buckle your seatbelts. We're going to go through a summary of the history of the world in about five minutes. And we're going to use some art. You may recognize this art as part of our logo art and that are components of our, of our mark. So let's go. Number one, 
We see here the leaves of representing the creation covenant. Here we have God's people, which is Adam, and subsequently all of mankind. Adam is the federal head. All died in Adam, in God's place, in the garden. And under God's rule, there was the covenant, the, the covenant at creation. God said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth, subdue it. He gave them charge of the garden. He gave them freedom and said, don't eat of this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which they did, and they blew it. But that was God's first expansion of his kingdom. Next, we see the Noahic covenant. God, the, the arch there representing the rainbow. God's people, Noah and the godly. The ungodly become so wicked, God had destroyed them with the flood. But there was this godly family of Noah that remained. They were God's people in God's place, presumably on the plains below Mount Ararat, under God's rule, the covenant he gave there. Promised to never destroy the world again by flood. Gave them authority, capital punishment. Put his covenant in place there. Next, we move on to Abraham, and we see here the stars that God showed Abraham and said, so shall your descendants be. So God's people hear Abraham and his descendants. God is narrowing it, successively adding to his kingdom in God's place, in the promised land where he wandered as an outcast. Under God's rule, he received the covenant of the land, the seed, and the blessing. I will give you this land, and you, all the nations of the world, will be blessed. And there's a seed that's coming. The same seed that, that God told uh, Adam and Eve, from your offspring will come one who will bruise the head. That same seed now, offspring we see now here, spoken to Abraham as the seed. Next, we see the Ten Commandments representing the law of Moses. Here we have God's people, Moses and Israel, in God's place. The nation of Israel at this point, wandering in the wilderness under God's rule, which is the law. Now we see the crown of King David, which you see here on the side as well. God's people, David and the king of Israel, in God's place from Jerusalem, under God's rule, establishing an eternal kingdom. God promised David that he would never lack a descendant on the throne, which was speaking of Jesus. And lastly, we come to the New Covenant. Remarkable how God ties together His purposes all in Christ. Jesus is God's people. Jesus is the new Adam, and Jesus is God's kingdom. Romans 17 says, Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. We actually, the people of God, are in Christ. He was the answer and the kingdom. Also, in God's place, the next slide, Jesus is the dwelling place. Jesus is the garden, the land, the city, the temple. Jesus said in John 2, 19, destroy this temple in three days I will raise it up. He says he, Jesus came to dwell among us. That literally means tabernacle with us. Jesus himself became the temple. He is a dwelling place of God's people now in the new covenant. And lastly, God's kingdom under God's rule. Jesus is the new covenant, the law of Christ. Luke twenty two twenty. The cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Paul talked about being under the law of Christ. Christ is God's rule. God has been at work through history and now through Christ to bring his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. 
By the way, if you're new here and you haven't actually figured out our logo, it might be here on the slide, the, the uh, title slide. You can see that uh, there's leaves on the side representing the um, uh, creation covenant. There's an arch, the rainbow, the flood on top of the crown. There's a star representing Abraham. Uh, and there's the two tablets representing the Ten Commandments, the Law of Moses, the Crown of David, representing the, the Davidic Covenant, and then the cup, Christ's blood. Together, they represent the progressive work of grace God has used for His kingdom to come and His will to be done up to now. Salvation has always been by grace for those who have been justified by, justified by faith in the coming Savior. So Jesus is praying your kingdom, tells us to pray your kingdom come. And initially what we're understanding here is Jesus is not saying, Jesus is saying, look to that kingdom that's coming. Call forward for that kingdom to be here. Long for that kingdom. That prayer is to direct us to imagine, to realize, to love, to long for, to live in the reality of a coming kingdom. And since the Garden of Eden, through all Scripture, God's been talking about it. The prophets talked about it. Micah, and we'll just read this passage, which just says it so well. Micah 4, verses 1 through 3. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountains. And it shall be lifted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And nations shall come and say... Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples. He shall decide disputes for strong nations far away and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears and their pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. Then they will hammer their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation. And never again will they train for war. When we pray your kingdom come, this is what we're praying for. We're crying out, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus. We're longing for his return. We're crying out for that kingdom where every tear is wiped away. No more sickness, where there's no more war, no more injustice, no more sin, no more sweaty striving for our wills to be done, but rather King Jesus, the Lamb who was slain before the foundations of the world, has taken away the sins of the world, and he will reign with a joyful, willing kingdom of servants which will be us in our glorified bodies. There Isaiah tells us of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. The throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do it. If you're discouraged with the world, I understand. Discouraged with sin within, I understand. Jesus says, look to this kingdom that's coming. Pray for it, long for it. You're not going to fix this world. You'll influence it. But long for that kingdom. 
So we have this future fullness, but then there is this present participation. So listen, we live in what the theologians call the already but not yet reality of God's kingdom. We already experience the first fruits of God's kingdom in our lives, but not yet its fullness. We, it's, like, it's like picking a few berries that ripen early, but having to wait for the whole bush to get ripe. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 14. Let's read this and think about how this works. <clears throat> Paul talking about Christ. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of His glory. So, we are to the praise of His glory right now. We have the word of truth right now. We have the gospel. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit already. But there is an inheritance coming that we have not yet experienced. So, we live in this tension. So, what is our present participation in God's kingdom? Let's wrestle with this. Let's look at some definitions. Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert in their book, What is the Mission of the Church? give us a simple but helpful definition. They say this, the kingdom of God is the redemptive reign of God over His people. Simply, kingdom of God is redemptive reign of God over His people. It's God working in our lives, through our lives, to redeem us, to, to cancel sin in our lives, to change our lives through us, to reach our families, to reach the world around us. God is redeeming the world through us. That's the extension of His kingdom. So the gospel, through the gospel, God is ruling over us and through us. Dr. Goldsworthy adds to this. He says this, <clears throat> the gospel is not simply forgiveness of sins and going to heaven when you die, as some might think. The gospel is a restoration of relationship between God, man, and the world. The gospel involves not only uh, us not only with God, but also with our fellow men and with the world. How this fact should affect the Christian view of world, politics, culture, the arts, ecology, and science should be our continuing concern. So these things somehow are an extension of God's kingdom. What is the prime mover of God's kingdom, we might ask? Well, it's the church. The church is the prime mover of God's kingdom in this age. Again, I think it's helpful what Kevin DeYoung and Greg Gilbert say. Here's a quote from them. They say it this way. The keys of the kingdom of God, the authority of that kingdom, the right to act in its name, are given in this age by the king to the church. It's not to the government, not to any king or pope or any other ruler, but rather to the church, to this ragtag bunch of argumentative ouch self-centered struggling for holiness but gloriously forgiven sinners that the keys of the kingdom are given God has given us the keys to the kingdom Lord have mercy so let's think about this carefully those things Dr. Goldsworthy mentioned politics, culture, arts ecology, science 
etc. can be, should be, expressions of the outworking of the gospel through our lives. They are not the gospel, but they adorn the gospel and should be influenced by the gospel. Now, it's important to understand that the church and the kingdom of God are not exactly the same thing. But kind of like looking in your side view mirror, they're closer than they might first appear. At Covenant Grace Church, this is our mission statement, our mission is to glorify God by multiplying and maturing disciples of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. So, the church proclaims the gospel, makes disciples. The disciples then take the power of the kingdom into every area of life. So the job of your elders as elders to mount a campaign against injustice or to care for the poor outside the church or to create employment opportunities or to fight against abortion, though we might do some of those things. It's not the job of the elders of the church to do those things. That's the job of the disciples. And that job starts in prayer when we pray your kingdom come. Number two, point number two, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we see this, your will be done, we should hearken back to the prayer we looked at last week when Jesus on the cross cried out, Abba, Father, with you all things are possible, yet your will be done, not my will. We pray the Lord's Prayer. We pray your will be done. It's a challenge to our hearts, to our motivations. It can be difficult at times to discern our heart motive for our prayers or to understand why certain kinds of prayers are absent. Prayers we should be praying, but we're not. Now, my mother was a prayer warrior. <laughs> she was a godly woman. Uh, she, she prayed many people into God's kingdom. God acted sovereignly in their salvation, but I'm positive my mother was one of his instruments through prayer. It was for me. She prayed me into the kingdom. My mother also saw many tangible answers to prayer, like people being delivered from addictions and oppressions. Uh, she even saw what seemed to be miraculous provision of natural things. Really, and I was often inspired to pray more specifically for things around me to see God's power act. <laughs> but sometimes, sometimes I don't know. I wasn't so sure. Mom lived in, uh, in North Florida, below Jacksonville, if you're familiar with that area. So, for example... <clears throat> She used to pray, when we go to the beach, she used to pray for God to, to move the clouds away from where we were, to, to move them to the north or to move them to the south. And seemingly, they did that. I guess the people north and south of us weren't, weren't praying hard enough because <laughs> that's where the clouds seemed to go. Uh, she also prayed hurricanes away. And... Uh, I, now, now what's, what's important to know is just north of where she lived, there's some farmland in Georgia where, uh, that has been in our family for a number of generations, and we grow pine trees there for harvest. And there are often droughts in that part of Georgia that can last for years. 
uh, it slows down the growth of the pine tree. So, so not good for far pine tree farmers. One day mom came to this stunning realization that by praying away the hurricanes from North Florida, she was creating a drought in South Georgia. <laughs> so she became more precise in how she prayed against those hurricanes. Listen, how do we know we're praying God's will, right? We can be fanciful sometimes in our prayer, and God, yes, can do all things, and we should believe God for great things. But we can be most confident of praying God's will, and not our will, when we pray from Scripture. Karen, my wife, is a wonderful example of this. She has a binder, I've shared this before, I think, for, for years she has prayed God's Scriptures God's scripture for our kids. I think you're an example. You provoke me in that. God reminds God of his word, not that God has forgotten his word or needs to be cajoled and to do it. No, in his sovereignty, he makes Karen's prayers of his word, instruments of his will, means of grace that he uses somehow in his, his economy to bring about his purposes. So let me encourage you, Part of how you answer that, how you do that, your will, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as in heaven is by praying with scriptures. Here's a couple of ways that I do this. So if I'm praying for unbelievers, it's not just Lord save them, but also I go off into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, kind of 1 through 6. There's a whole passage there that I can pray through. But, but essentially God is... The God of this world has blinded the mind of unbelievers, but God has shown in their hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So, Lord, Lord, break, remove the blindness from their eyes, shine in them with the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's a prayer that I'm praying biblically. And I think that adds power to my prayer. Another area, not just praying for my children or actually praying for you. I've prayed this prayer for you many times as a church over the years from Ephesians, verses 1, 15 through 21. It's Paul's prayer. It's a powerful prayer. Uh, and, and there's a lot in there that I pray, but essentially, you know, biblically praying, God, give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. Praying that for you. Or, or from 3 John, verse 2, I pray that all may go well with you and that it, you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. It's a biblical prayer. That God will bless. When we do the work of finding God's will in His Word, our prayers become sharper and more effective. Here's how the Apostle John said it in 1 John 5, 14 and 15. And this is the confidence that we have toward Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And we know that He hears us, and if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we've asked of him. So, yes, God calls us to pray for miracles and things that we don't see exactly in Scripture at times, and we should be bold to do that. But we should also fear the Lord that we're praying His will and praying Scripture. It's very helpful in doing that. J.I. Packer, in his book, Growing in Christ, comments on your will be done, and he says it this way, powerfully, cautionary way. He says, here, more clearly than anywhere, the purpose of prayer becomes plain. Not to make God do my will, 
just practicing magic, but bringing my will into line with his, which, what, which is what it means to practice true religion. So I'm cautious about commanding things to happen. I'm cautious about telling God to do something. I, I can do it in faith, and God may lead me to do and pray big, great big prayers, and I will do that. But, I, but there should be a fear of the Lord your God, not my will, but your will. Am I really, this, yeah, that seems nice, but is that really what God's telling me to pray? There's a caution we should have there. And not expect, okay, I've lined these three verses up, God, so why didn't you do it? I, you're supposed to do it. If I do this, you're going to do it. Well, no, that's like rubbing a lamp. God hears us, but it's your will be done. In his book, Dr. Packard records a practice of prayer which John Wesley included in the covenant service of the Methodist Church. Don't know what that exactly was. I'm some sort of commitment service. But they prayed this way, and I thought it was powerful and helpful for us to think about. Here's how they prayed. Everyone stood and prayed together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Rank me with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee or laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Thou art mine, and I am Thine. So be it. And the covenant which I made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I find I, I'm often praying for God to make my life easier. At heart, Lord, help, help, me, help me do this. Lord, make me successful. God, help me get this thing done. And, and yeah, nothing wrong with that. But how often do I pray for hard things? How often do we pray for hard things? For greater sacrifice. Lord, give me that difficult place of ministry. Lord, my soul, my soul needs to lay down my will and do you will. God, where is that hard place of ministry? Lord, give that to me. Where's that person that's hard to, to handle, hard to minister to the Lord? Can I help him? Can I help her? But where is that mission field that you would send me that, Lord, maybe I'd never see my family again. Oh, God, would you have that for me? Are we praying for hard things? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does prayer like this look like when it's answered? How does it seem? How is it when God answers the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven? Well, the Bible is filled with that, but probably nowhere do we see it better than Hebrews chapter 11. So if you've got your place marked there, I ask you to take a look at it. We're going to read this chapter here. A lot of theoretical ideas about the kingdom. Here we see what the kingdom looks like. And we'll see the saints of old lining the way. We'll see 
those covenant places where God expanded his kingdom and what it cost to do that. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. It says this. Now faith, the faith to pray, right? Now faith, the faith. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, people of all received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him in prayer. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was received as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. And by faith, he went to live in a land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to a city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who promised. Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, was born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking for a homeland. They've been thinking of the land from which they had gone out. They would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. Do you desire a better country? They desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promise was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive it back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each one of his, the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave directions concerning his bone. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refusing to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the approach of Christ greater 
wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking forward to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was invisible. By faith he kept the Passover, he sprinkled the blood, so the destroyer, the firstborn, might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down after they'd been encircled for seven days. By faith Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, but because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, attained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had promised something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Listen, God, since the Garden of Eden, God, through all the heroes of the faith, has been building his kingdom. Christ came and issued the new covenant and brought us into that kingdom. This is how we should pray. We should pray for God's power to come to change the world, Amen. to overturn kingdoms. Great prayers of faith, but yet at the same time, identifying not with this world, but with that city that's coming, with Christ, being willing to suffer rejection, go out beyond the camp, to love more the treasures of heaven than the treasures of Egypt, and those things around us, and to pray, Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth, in my life, with my children, as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we what we see dimly. We see what it meant to bring your kingdom through the ages, these saints of old that line the way, this great cloud of witness that surrounds us. And Lord, we can feel, Lord, Father, we can feel, Lord, children of a lesser generation, weak, distracted. But God, that's the kind of people you have always used. Lord, it's not that they were great people. It's that you're a great God. Yes. And you act and no one can stop you. And so, Lord God, we, we pray that we would be in this generation, your people, that we would stand 
longing for your kingdom to come, longing for that great day. Lord, ruined for this world. No longer loving the things of this world, but longing and desiring and waiting and knowing that whatever good we know now is a small, pale shadow of that true kingdom that's coming. And may we pray for it, Lord. May we live for it, Lord. Ruin us with this prayer. Change our lives. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.